verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Uh, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Work. Work is one of those inevitabilities of life. Work is something we have to do, and if we find work that we don't like to do, it can often be hard for us to do that work. We lack motivation. Uh, we don't really want to get the job done. We simply can be moved to inaction. Uh, the opposite is true of jobs that we find that we really like. Have you ever had one of those jobs that you really look forward to going to each day? That you really liked doing? The work can become a joy. It becomes something we long to do, not that we're forced to have to do. But the reality is this, that we cannot escape life. This is a, or excuse me, work. Our life is a life that is lived as being called to work. It's what we find in the garden, in the mandate, the cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. It's a life of work. It's part of the great commission that Jesus gave us. Go into all the world, make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. We must be working. We cannot remain idle. And our idleness reveals, when we are idle, it reveals something about us. That we do not love the task which we are called to do. Noah comes as this example of one who worked, who worked in faith. And he's a very notable person, a notable figure in all of the Old Testament. Like Adam, Noah shares the distinction of being, having all humanity come from him. You had Adam and then Noah with the flood. Everything, everybody was wiped out and only people left were Noah and his descendants. And we have that distinction there with Noah. Likewise, the flood is one of the greatest events in the history of the world and is brought on by the magnitude of humanity's sin. But if you look at, at, at the history of the world, if you look at different religions or different cultures, we not surprisingly find the story of Noah and the flood remembered. You can go to a, a Sumerian tablet from 1600 BC, and it talks about a king who was warned by the destructive flood who built a great boat. Or you can go to the Akkadian Atrocis epic, where a great flood came to curb mankind's wickedness, and only Atrasis, I'm probably going to say his name wrong, I'm sorry, and his family survived. They built a great boat. It, it seems to be the inspiration behind the epic of Gilgamesh, which is a similar story. And to some, they use this and they say, well, isn't this evidence of just that the story of Noah is just another example of this, just a made-up story? And you go, no. It would be very shocking, I believe, uh, if there wasn't other stories that remembered the story of Noah. When you talk about an event so earth, 
changing, that the flood came and from there life is re, uh, having to repopulate and as Noah's descendants stretched out, you don't think that story would have been told? That Noah's sons wouldn't have told his, their sons and their sons told their sons the story of the flood? It should not be surprising to us that we see this story in other cultures and other religions because it was impactful. It was world-changing. But the events of Noah's life aren't only world-changing, they have great theological significance. In Noah, we find the first time grace being mentioned and righteousness being mentioned. We see in Noah this great symbol of judgment, but we also see this great symbol of the covenant. He was a significant and great man, uh, but what he is most noteworthy for is his faith. Not in what he did, but what what God did. And so as we come and we look at Noah, we're going to see three things. We're going to see a faith that works, a faith that condemns, and a faith that saves. A faith that works, a faith that condemns, and a faith that saves. Um, before we begin, though, I think we need to, for a moment, rid ourselves of Noah baggage. What do I mean by that? As Noah is one of those stories that is so often told and retold uh, for, for children. It's told in, I remember growing up, there was numerous Christian cartoons I can't remember the name of it, but the one where they go back in time and witness the events that happened as they're happening. And there's many things that I believe we've added to the story of Noah that never happened. Many of you may think Noah regularly preached to those around him that they needed to come on the ark with him. The Bible never says that. Anywhere does the Bible say that Noah went to the people around him and said, hey, you need to repent and come on the ark with me. Nowhere does it say that. In fact, we don't actually know all that much about Noah leading up to the flood, aside from the fact that God told Noah to build an ark, and he obeyed. And then after 120 years, he got on that ark with all the animals that we see, and the earth was destroyed. The Bible, there's just, and, and, I, and we understand how we get there, because we want to think about well, what happened for those 120 years that we don't get about Noah, right? And, and don't misunderstand me. There's a good chance that Noah during that time was preaching and saying, come on. But we don't know, and and God didn't command him to do that. Noah was a man of faith who God came to and said, the wickedness of this earth is too much. I am going to destroy it. I am going to preserve it through you. Build a boat. Build a boat about the size of a modern battleship. And build it on dry ground. Uh, we're just going to look about a, look at a little bit of the story of, of Noah this morning from Genesis six. I'm just going to read verse thirteen through eighteen. <clears throat> and God said to Noah, "I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood." Make the rooms in the ark and cover the inside and and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark to finish it. 
to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood upon the waters of the earth to destroy all the flesh in which as breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives and with you. And it goes on, but that's all we're going to read this morning. God says, build a boat, and I'm going to save you and your family and the animals. That's it. But I think it's also interesting, and it's worth noting, that 120 years passed between God's commandment and the the coming of the flood. And you can imagine, and I want you to, to understand that as I do it, we're just imagining We've all had that maybe that, that crazy neighbor, that eccentric neighbor. That's just old man, whoever. He's just, just how he is. And you can, you can imagine Noah and his sons and they begin to build the ark. And you're like, what are you doing, man? 120 years of building this ark. 120 years. Moses was to live in faith and work to a goal which the only certainty he had of it was what? God said. That's it. Noah stood alone in his generation. Apart from his immediate family members and even really their status of righteousness is not mentioned here. In fact, we'll see post-flood. We won't actually go look at it. But if you go look at it post-flood, There's some wickedness that remains in Noah's own family, in his sons. But Noah alone here is trusting in the Lord. Noah found favor. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't that he was blameless, but he had God's favor. Faith is how he lived. It was the principle for all that he did. And God required that Noah believe something that had never happened before. I'm going to bring a great flood. There was no observable evidence why Noah should believe this would happen. But he had faith. It's the same thing that we're called to in the opposite direction, right? We cannot physically with our eyes observe the cross. We see the evidence of the cross before us, but we are called to have faith. We also cannot see right now God in heaven, but we are to have faith. It all goes back to what faith is, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Noah did not see it, but he had faith, or he did not see it yet. He would see it. And his faith pushed him to work. When we talk about faith and works in the Bible, it it seems that the Bible is of two minds on this. I say it seems because it's not actually. It's the struggle Luther had. Luther would go to Paul in Romans and he would see righteousness that is apart from works. And then he would go to James and he would say, show me your faith without works and I show you a dead faith. And Luther struggled with that. The reality is that these things are not in conflict. They are in beautiful concert with one another. We need faith, but we also need works that flow out of that faith. 
John Calvin said it this way. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. True and saving faith is always accompanied by obedience, which flows from faith like waters from a fountain. Faith and works go hand in hand. And at the end of the day, we are the proof of Noah's faith that God preserved and protected humanity through Noah. We see through Noah's faith that he obeyed everything that God told him to do. He built the ark exactly how he was supposed to build it. To the right dimensions, to the right heights. He obeyed God to the last word. Oftentimes you'll hear this word and I quote them often. uh, And you may know something about them, but... You think of the Puritans of the 17th century. The Puritans was not a name they gave themselves. Did you know that? We, we now look back on the Puritans and go, oh, yeah, they were the Puritans. And we think of it as a positive thing. It was an, actually an insult. Uh, it's as if we were to call them holier than thou. You know how we might say that to some Mr. Holier than thou over there, always doing things right. That was what pure, it was derogatory. And the reason the Puritans earned this derogatory uh, name was that they had great care for how they studied and obeyed God's word. I will say, if you go read the Puritans and see some of their practices, you might at some point go, well, don't you think that was a little bit too far? And maybe. But do you know where it came from? A heart that desired to be obedient. A heart that desired. And so one of the things you'll often hear that the Puritans did is, on Saturday evening, they prepared Sunday lunch. And do you know when they cleaned Sunday lunch up? Monday. And that was their effort to keep the Sabbath holy. And you, you can make an argument, I think a compelling argument. They go, well, maybe that was just a step too far. And I go, yeah, maybe. But where was their heart? What was their desire? It was to keep the Sabbath holy. And I'm sure for many that spilled over into a, a workspace righteousness because that's our tendency. But it also was a desire to obey God. Obedience, obeying God's word, moving it to to work in faith, it liberates us to do what is good, to do what is right. Because the reality is the path of obedience to Christ is a narrow one. When we say you are to obey what Christ says or what Jesus teaches you, that means there are things you can do and things you cannot do. That means at times the answer is is no. I don't like no as an answer. I want to be able to do what I want. But no, there are times where we simply have to do what God has called us to because he has called us to do that. To act in our belief. To act in conviction, conviction in keeping what he has taught us. The reality is this, that if we believe... Jesus is who he says he is, then we must work, and we must work the way he has commanded us to work, to be obedient. So the question is this, as we look at the life of Noah, and we've seen over the last few weeks, you know, Abel, a faith that saves and then we look at Enoch, a faith that walked. And now we're seeing Noah, a faith that works. And we ask this question, 
Do we have a faith that is a working faith that is actively seeking to do what God has commanded us to do? Do we have a faith that seeks truth where he has given us truth? Do we have a faith that seeks fellowship that can be only be found in him? And I think that we can easily, in the, in the life of the church, confuse being busy with working. What do I mean by this? Uh, there are things around this building, just taking our building as an example, that have to be done. Uh, we have to clean up the building. We don't have anyone right now who's being paid to do that so it's fallen to the congregation and that's a volunteer thing or we have people who print bulletins or who teach Sunday school or we have people who cook dinner and other things like that they're all things that need to be done but and and hear me before I say this but these are all good and necessary things that have to be done but if that's all we do to the exclusion of telling people about Jesus then we're missing something. We're missing something. The problem comes when we do that and we call that church life. And that's what we're resting in. Imagine for a moment Noah, who says something like this, well, God... I got 120 years here and over that 120 years I need to eat. So let me go plant my food first. And if he took care of all the things that had to happen each day, but he never built the ark, what would have happened? Well, no you and me, right? We have to work and labor in his kingdom the way he wants us to work and labor. And so I think we need to regularly be asking, and hear me as I say this, I'm not... I'm not saying those other things aren't needed and necessary, and they are, and they're good, and they're right. I'm saying that they can't be by themselves. They have, there has to be more because he has commanded us to more. And so we have to ask ourselves as a church regularly, are we doing as a church what Christ has called us to do? And he has blessed us in so many ways. He's given us gifted and talented people. He's blessed us with finances to keep the door open. And he's put us here to be about his work. To care for those who are in need. To proclaim Christ and him crucified. Are we doing the work of faith? Are we seeking obedience to him? Are we seeking to faithfully serve him? We have to be about the work of faith. But the second thing we see here in Noah is a faith that condemns. By faith, Noah condemned the world. It says this in verse 7, By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness. Now again, we note here that this is not saying that Noah was always out going, I condemn you, world. You're bad. You do bad things. Stop doing bad things. That's not what this faith is doing here. And we can be sure that the world, I'm sure, condemned him. You're a crazy old man. Why are you building this big boat? This doesn't make sense. 
But through his action of obedience, over that 120 years, after maybe potentially having to deal with mockery day in and day out, can you imagine as the waters rose and his neighbors looked to the ark, oh, this is why he was building a boat. His faithfulness and obedience to God condemned them. We can see something similar going in the world around us. Because the world would say to us, you should never devout, or excuse me, you should never um, deny self. You should never deny self. Do what is good for you. Do what feels good. Live first and foremost for self. Don't let someone or something hinder you from being happy. Live for self. If Noah lived for self, what would that have looked like? But no, Noah as we're told by Peter in 2 Peter 2.5, is called a herald of righteousness. Through his actions, through his words, or excuse me, through his actions, he warned the world of a coming judgment. The ark was built as a vessel of safety. It was a means of salvation and grace. And people are continuing to ignore the ark that God has provided for them. This is the point Jesus makes in Matthew 24, verse 38 through 39. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. What is, what is Jesus saying there? There are people out there who are going to keep on living life. They're going to be eating and drinking and uh, being married and all these other things. And then Jesus is going to come back. And they're going to be, oh, I'm not in the ark. I don't have salvation in Jesus. Because Jesus is coming. There is a day when they will no longer be able to ignore him. They will see with eyes and ears that he is the truth. Moses' faith condemned the world. And it did so on the basis of his righteousness as he obediently worked as God commanded him to work. Brothers and sisters, does our faith, our faith that should be put to work, condemn the world? What I'm not saying here, and there have been many who take this posture, is that we as the church should be screaming at people condemning them. That is not what Noah's faith of condemning the world looks like. And there are certainly people out there who will shout, you're living in sin. Let me tell you what you're doing wrong. We are called to labor through our life of faith. 
Elsewhere in the Bible, I believe it's in the Psalms, it says, as we live, even while we're oppressed, it's like heaping coals upon the head. As we live righteously before God. We are called to labor and to work righteously. Even knowing and understanding that as we labor, as our righteousness hopefully is condemning the world, we don't always see the results. Brothers and sisters, I think sometimes we here in this little small church can be discouraged because we don't see always the results of our labors. There are days when we can come to this church on a Sunday morning and look around this room and go, man, it feels empty in here. And I think there's always things we can be doing better, but we cannot allow ourselves to think that success is the thing that determines our labor. Moses went on the ark with him and his family. That's it. Success does not determine our, 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 I should say our view of success does not determine the way we work because God has each of us here for a reason. I, I, I know personally, and this is something I struggle with, but, and I have to remind myself, the labor that I do at Lakewood here, the reason God has me here sometimes is external so that I can look over the last few years and see the marriage that Luann and I got to help restore of someone who never attended here. And I say, God had me here to, to do that. Or I can look at the family that we, we get to regularly talk to and we talk about issues of morality. I can see God using me in these things, but I can also come to church and I, and I can see Rusty's heart when he talks about people at work that he has a broken heart for because they don't know Jesus. Or I can, I can see Virginia as she goes to the person that is just standing there across the the, the parking lot and says, can I pray for you? Or I see Ashley who compassionately says, can I pray for you? As she met Melanie on, on Wednesday night, as she hears she's going through cancer, or I see Mark or Steve giving money to those who need it, not based upon the fact, well, are you going to use this for drugs or alcohol? No, they say, I am faithfully giving you this, not for you, but because I am serving my God. We are to faithfully be working. And we have to stop judging our success on the world's standards. God has us working. And we have to have a faith that would do what God would have us do. And then have the faith to do it. Not worrying about the outcome, but leaving it to God. Allowing our righteousness... Our obedience to God to condemn the world. We have to faithfully work and labor in this way. Because the last thing that we see here is that Noah had a faith that saves. He has become, it says here, an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Uh, if you were to glance over that text real quickly, you may miss the point of what it's saying. 
That language, though, is rich in New Testament language, isn't it? Because who else has become heirs of righteousness? So what? Well, I guess I could go one place, but this is what Paul talks about all over the place, right? Paul in Romans, Paul in Galatians. Uh, we who are in Christ have become heirs of the righteousness that comes by faith. That's Christ's righteousness. It came not by Noah's obedience to build the ark. It came by Noah's faith. Yes, we can look at Noah and we can see that Noah did many great things. He built this ark. He was the savior in a sense of humanity. He did many great things, but it was not on this that he relied. He did not seek a limited or an imperfect righteousness of his own. He sought a righteousness that came through God, through faith, a faith that saves. He became a righteous heir, a child of God. It is an inheritance that God gives to his children, not because of something Noah did or something that we do. It's, it's not that God looked on Noah after it was all said and done and said, good job, because you worked so hard, here's righteousness. No. It was faith that, that, by faith that he received that righteousness. We possess it now as a right. And it cannot be lost. It cannot be taken away. Yes, Noah's faith meant condemnation, but it also meant salvation. He acted as an instrument of salvation. He is a herald of righteousness. Our labor, our work, must be to the same end. Are we living our life as a picture of salvation? Do people, when they look at you from day to day, see the salvation of God on display? Peter Lewis says it this way. Christ Jesus is our ark now. Big enough for the whole world, strong enough to withstand the shocks of life, the rising waters of death, and the upheaval of the last judgment. There is safety here in the Son of God, sent to be for us all the shelter, the salvation that we so desperately need, our ark and safe passage into the new world God has planned. From that ark, we will emerge to inherit a new heaven and a new earth. God has come and says, believe in me. And through faith, we are saved from the wrath that is to come. Through faith in Christ Jesus, in what he has done, what he has finished, he brings salvation for all who believe. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the reality is twofold. We live in a world that needs Jesus. But not only this, we live in that world and we need Jesus. 
We need Jesus. Are we living for him? Are you living in such a way that the world is mocking you? Are you living in such a way that the world is mocking you? Is your salvation, is your hope, is your faith in the salvation of Jesus Christ so evident to the world that that for all those who don't know him, who follow this world, look at you and say, you are foolish. Is the world mocking you because of your faith? We cannot work in the shadows. People need to know what it is that we believe. I think sadly the church has fallen into this habit and we use this saying that is very, it sounds very good. And it is even, I think, we like to, we find some biblical basis for it. And we say, well, the world will see Jesus in me just from the way I live. And that's certainly true. Uh, But then the problem is that we begin to not live as boldly as we should live. And we live the way Jesus would have us live behind closed doors. And we remove ourselves from the world and we remove the truth. And we, we begin to tell our things like, well, they won't hear me well anyway. So I'll just not say anything. People need to know what it is that we believe. And I'm not saying that we need to necessarily, and maybe in some cases this works, but I'm not saying necessarily that we need to go on the street corners with a bullhorn and be yelling at people as they try by what what it is that we believe. That's not exactly what I'm saying. And that may work for some in some situations. I don't know. I'm not making a comment on that. The point is this, that the people who we come in contact need to know that we, who we have faith in, that we have a faith that works Not upon our own efforts, but upon him who we have faith in. That our work seeks to honor God in all that it does. That our work is not lazy or complacent. For if it is lazy and complacent, it reveals our hearts. We talk about that labor that we love to do, right? That work, that job maybe that we love. And it's easy. Is the work of faith easy for you? And not that is it not hard, but is it a joy? Even when it's hard. Do you actively each and every day say, how can I work for God today? Knowing that our faith as we live it out righteously condemns the world. Not focus on verbally lashing out at them, but through the action of faith, rebuke those who live in ungodliness of life, who are ungodly in all that they do, and praying and hoping that that faith that works and condemns will lead to a faith that saves. That people would see through us the salvation of Jesus, not only through our actions, through our words, by the way we engage with them, by the way we love and care for them. It is what we are called to do. It's not either or. It's not faith or works. 
It's faith and works. And it's not that our works are that the thing that save us, but they are the evidence of a faith that is saving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, would you press upon our hearts a desire to labor and work by faith in obedience to your word, even when it's hard. Would we do it with joy and a longingness to be before you, be obedient to you. We ask and pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.